welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this week I'm joined by a man whose reputation precedes him. Once you've met him, you'll never forget him, because he will never forget you. <laughs> of course, it's the myth, the man, the legend, Dr. Scott Fabricant. Scott, welcome Hello. to the podcast. Thank you. No, uh, we're, we're here in your old stomping grinds, Macquarie University. It's good and weird to be back. Yeah? <laughs> in, in what way? Well, you know, I'd be walking from the train station and it would feel like, almost like, oh no, I'm running late to my lab meeting. And then I remember, no, I haven't been here in years. <laughs> like, it's weird. Your mind just slips back into that. So you did your PhD here. I did. We How actually many... met during that. Yes. I've seen you before. <laughs> We have. We go way back. <laughs> How long ago was that? When did when did you leave here again? I I think it was twenty fourteen. Okay. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And what was your PhD on? Think way back. Think way back. <laughs> Actually, about uh, five five or or ten days ago, I think I had my last chapter of my dissertation published in a research journal. It took four years to it, get those PhD papers out. It did. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, so my work was looking at uh, variation in warning coloration. So, you know, the elevator pitch is that you would think that all things that are not tasty or defended, uh, they advertise this with bright colors or signals or smells, you know, think lady beetles. Mm-hmm. And you would think that all of them would be identical. Uh, you you eat one, you learn you don't eat the next one. But that's not always true. There's a lot of variation in the signal. And that makes no sense. Because if they look different, you know, maybe the predator that learned not to eat your friend is still going to eat you. Uh, so what's driving this variation in warning coloration? Well, I spent four years trying to figure it out. And the answer is basically a collective shoulder shrug. Uh, <laughs> They're, a big flat, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, that's how research goes. You get more questions than answers. We did actually learn quite a lot of interesting things. We learned uh, about how uh, environmental temperature plasticity matters. We learned how local adaptation matters. We learned a little bit uh, about uh, sexual selection with a second researcher who was also working with these bugs. Uh, we even learned how these colorblind predators uh, are selecting on the bugs in a way that makes us humans think they're being opossumatic. You think bright orange, wow, you must be sending a signal. But if you can't see orange, you're actually cryptic. And so we didn't really think about this before. And we didn't think about so much who's eating, because birds were, were grossed out by them and praying mantis loved them. And so the same signal that you would think is cryptic to us or possumatic to us wasn't, depending on the visual abilities of the predator who's looking. So these are little cotton uh, hibiscus bug things. Yeah. So they're little, well, they're bugs. Mm-hmm. They're large bugs. You'll find them on usually citrus trees, that sort of stuff. And they've got these big iridescent blobs on their back. And so we, I guess the idea is we think that the orange contrasted with the iridescent blacky blue is this warning signal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we see such high contrast and bright orange and blue and black and you immediately think you must be bad. Yeah. And they are stink bugs, but they're weirdly weak. 
they just they don't bother me. They're they're almost pleasant, <laughs> almost. It's weak in a. They don't taste bad. They they don't smell bad. I haven't tasted them. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. There you go. I, I know there's a thing you're supposed to eat your study organism, but I never I never ate the bugs, and later on I never ate the mice. Um, <laughs> I, I know it was tempting. Um, but yeah, they they are defended, and things like ants and birds will uh, ignore them. But they're not defended to other predators like spiders and praying mantids, and so that's the, because the praying mantises and spiders can't see really the difference between they they also they well they can't see, but they also seemingly don't give a damn. Oh, okay. They <laughs> they are like hmm aldehydes, whatever. Nom nom nom. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're not dissuaded the way that the birds are. The birds are pickier. It smells bad. It tastes bad. I'm not going to bother with it. I'll find something better. Mm. But the mantids are so food motivated. They're just like, am I dying? No, let's eat. <laughs> and so the idea that, you know, it's defended uh, an organism, you really have to interrogate that a lot deeper. Yeah. You have to think, who's hunting you? What is their physiology? What can they see? What can they taste? What do they care about? Mm. And I think a lot of um, the apostematism warning coloration work is really not thought about that so much. Uh, there's your first controversial opinion. Um, a lot of it's been done with, uh, you know, European great tits or chickens. And they just aren't thinking about in the wild who is eating them. And I think the, the literature is, for the most part, accurate and, and correct, but I don't think it's really gotten deep, and I think there's a lot of layers that are still left to be uncovered. Mm. Um, I really kind of... The, the whole introduction of my thesis was all about that we need to use more uh, arthropod predators in our behavioral work because they are hugely abundant and hugely impactful in the environment, and we just ignore them in evolutionary studies. And I think... We, we think of them as, as automatons that just eat everything in sight, and that's just not necessarily true. And I think if we spent uh, more time looking at their impact on evolution of these micro-critters, I think we would learn quite a lot of interesting things. Mm. I mean, these sort of know, aspects of biology, you know, the idea that bright colors signal toxicity or mottled brown colors makes you hard to see, all seem really... Uh, intuitive, but it seems like lately they're kind of all being thrown under the bus and questioned again and found to not be as simple as we think. Yeah, well, that's that's correct. You know, our human eyes are bizarre. We see uh, our photoreceptors are most maximal uh, sensitive to blue, green, and red, but that's really not normal in the animal kingdom. A lot of things can see ultraviolet and we can't. Things can see polarized light, even circularly polarized, and we can't. They're animals that are, um, quote, co- colorblind, like a dog, which is not really colorblind. <laughs> you know, they, they see a lot of shades. You have true colorblind, like the mantids, and a lot of things that can't see things like red. Uh, and so if we use our eyes uh, to look at the world around us, we don't necessarily see things the way that most other living things do. Mm. So it's, it's great to interrogate this idea of what is warning, what is cryptic all over again. So you're looking at how animals see these bugs. Mm. And you're also looking at the flip side of it and getting into the actual colors of the bugs themselves and the mechanisms behind these colors and why they're there. Mm-hmm. So why why do why do bugs vary? Why do they have different you know black iridescent patterns on their back? Why aren't they all the same? 
Well, I think at the at the end of the day, at the end of you know three and a half years and then some, uh, we never totally figured it out. <laughs> but it seemed that there was just a lot of different things competing for uh, natural selection. Uh, it's just like you might have your household budget, and you might want to spend it all on rent on a really big apartment, but you also have your um, your car, your maybe health insurance if you're an American. Uh, a lot of your your, your um, food and leisure, and so you can't spend all your money in one place. And so we found in this case, um, you had temperature that was making it really hard to make this iridescent patterning. The hotter it is, the harder it was to make. Uh, we found how, how, how does that work? Why <laughs> why would temperature affect your ability to make for, color? Well, for a reason that's still not entirely understood. This enzyme that makes this dark black pigment, melanin, same thing that makes people's hair uh, brown and black. This, uh, this enzyme in insects is temperature sensitive. The hotter it is, the worse it is at making melanin. And so you end up having um, things where the, the warmer something is, the lighter it is. Uh, and you can actually see this in a certain type of cat. Uh, is it Siamese? Where, for the most part, everything around the body, the hair is uh, really light. But then the tips of the ears and the tips of the tails, parts that are colder than body temperature, are actually black. <laughs> because the enzyme is working only in that parts of the cat's body. Because they're the cool extremities. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a really common uh, cat, and everyone's like, wow, that's so cool. But it's a, even cooler than people realize. So that's no something we've actually shown, that if you, if you stick a, a cat in an oven, it will... Uh, lose its brown tips I don't know <laughs> if you stick a cat in an oven you've got a big problem what are you Sweeney Todd come on um, I mean this is more what happens during development it's not so easy to just take a cat and you know put them in a hot room yeah um, but it's it's definitely a lot easier to do with uh, insects you can take something like a cricket and you know raise it in I don't know 35 degrees it'll be really kind of light Put it somewhere 22, it'll be really kind of dark, and then you can get anything in between. Mm. Um, but it, even despite that, it wasn't even a simple uh, gradient because different locations had either a sharper or flatter gradient. You know, the, some of them would switch from really dark to really light and nothing in between, and some of them would be all shades in the middle. So there was local adaptation and phenotypic plasticity and sexual selection all going on at the same time. Because I remember you talking about there being an almost general pattern where insects up north in Australia and tropical areas had less black coloration than down south. Mm-hmm. And is that still true, simply because of these broad changes in temperature between the temperate and tropical regions? Well, at least in the case of my study system, we, we brought them into the lab to do this uh, as an experiment. Uh, because when we were up north, we were seeing all these really light orange bugs, and we thought, is it just really hot in Darwin? Well, it is hot in Darwin, but if you if you raise them in the cold temperatures in the lab, something kind of weird happens. Uh, they are really light and still light and still light, and then they suddenly switch, and they go from really light to really dark and really big iridescent patches, and there's no middle ground. And that's bizarre, because if you take plants from a cooler place in Australia, um, the bugs in a cooler place in Australia, and you raise them, you get a lot of medium and kind of mediocre uh, middling patches. And so what's going on with the Darwin and tropical population that they just kind of flip a developmental switch while the temperate populations are all kind of in the middle? 
we never exactly figured it out. We think it has to do with predators, or we think the more stable temperature uh, regime in the tropics has relaxed selection on this melanin enzyme. We're not really sure which one, and it's kind of hard to tease them apart. So for someone who hasn't worked on these bugs in four years, you haven't forgotten <laughs> much about them. Is, is all this information still readily available in your head? Or is this like uh, PhD days? <laughs> um, well, it's, it's a, little, a little of columns A, B, and C. Part of it is, you know, you, you work on something so closely, so deeply for so long, it drills deep in your brain. I think you can talk to somebody who is a professor emeritus and they're still going to remember things about their doctorate. Mm. Um, partially, I just happen to have a lot of trivia on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> Uh, I remember lots of random pointless facts for no good reason. Uh, And the third reason is I got my memory jogged recently (laughs) that it had been years and I had forgotten practically about this paper when a visiting scholar to the lab just emails me out of the blue and goes, hey, uh, I've been assigned your your dead data. Uh, I rewrote your paper. I hope you don't mind. Can you just look it over quickly? And see if there's uh, you know anything you want to say, any any comments. And at the time, I was studying for a a heart physiology exam, <laughs> which couldn't be you know further. And I was like, okay, okay, let me take you know a fiver break, look it over, rubber stamp. And I read it over, and it was great. You know, the person who did it is wonderful, and I owe her a deep gratitude for her excellent work. But there was just one significant issue that you that I only knew because I did the paper and I wrote the data set and so uh, honestly it was my fault for not having a clearer data set but <laughs> you know I saw it I'm like oh no um, I need to fix this and I was just like all of this analysis was done in R do I have R I don't even have R on my computer anymore I forgot how to use this statistical program I forgot all the data, uh, our, our data sets don't even line up right. Oh, no. And so even though I had this exam, uh, I think three days later, I basically pulled an all-nighter and retaught myself all of this stuff just so I can uh, redo this analysis and, re- and basically rewrite the discussion section. <laughs> so it's fresh in my mind. Good. Well, but you've moved on from bugs in a big way. So you did your PhD on, I guess, behavioral ecology yeah. and entomology and all this sort of stuff. Well, people still ask me if I can identify a bug. Even though people know that I'm long gone there, they send me a picture of an insect. Hey, what is this? And I'm just like, I think I know the phylum it's in. <laughs> Maybe the order if I squint. <laughs> Uh, But I never did entomology, and I don't know why everyone assumes that, you know, behavioral ecology and evolutionary ecology somehow translates to, look at my bug. But I I guess that's the same reason how you could be doing, you know, you could be any kind of physician at all, and they'll be like, hey, what's my rash? (laughs) Are those the questions you're getting now? Is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> More than I would have expected. Okay, so so you're now moving into medicine from from completing a PhD in pure biology and zoology. You've you've decided to change courses. Why? Go discuss. Oh man, um, <laughs> this this is the part of the interview I have to be careful. <laughs> When you had such a terrible time as a zoologist, you had to get the hell out of here. What no, actually, I, I, had a, I actually had a wonderful time. 
<laughs> um, it was it was really fun. I got to come to work and, and do things that I thought were really interesting. Mm. Um, but I think there are different maybe types of people who are interested in science. And the best type of researcher is the person who loves the thrill of discovery and they love playing the long game and they are excited to spend a year tinkering away methodically at a big issue and they don't know what the outcome is and it doesn't really matter to them because the whole tinkering process is fun and that wasn't quite me. Mm. Uh, I, you know, I got the thrills from the learning. I got my excitement from, you know, significant (laughs) p-values. That's always, that's still a thrill. Um, But a lot of the uh, day-to-day minutiae, I don't really have the right kind of personality for that, I guess. I wasn't really a good lab tinkerer. Uh, And so even though I really did enjoy what I was doing and found it fascinating, and I would like to think it still comes across in how I talk about it, but the actual day-to-day work of it um, just kind of became tedious. And so I thought, what can I do to keep myself kind of interested you know, I figure research is going to be a painful toil no matter what kind of research I do. But maybe if I do something that I feel has a direct positive impact on the world, maybe that kind of tedium will be uh, justifiable in my head at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So I tried to do uh, something medical. I don't know why it was medical over environmental. It was probably just cynicism living in Australia and watching the barrier reef slowly die, (laughs) realizing it's all too late. I think I was just like, well, planet's too late, but I can help people. Um, But it was really hard to get a job in the medical sciences when your entire background is, I know shiny bugs. (laughs) Yep. And I applied for jobs all over the world and I got actually rejected from every single one of them. First time I tried to apply for a post, I got everything got shot down. And these were all medical focused mm-hmm. postdocs, yeah. Some of these were looking at the microbiome, some of them were looking at um, bacteria and bacterial ecology. Mm. You know, I tried to kind of weasel my way in there, um, you know, holding up ecology, but they were having none of that. <laughs> Uh, one time I sequenced my bugs and tried to leverage that into doing genetics. Uh, I did a little bit of growing bacteria on a plate to infect my bugs back in the day and tried to turn that into uh, being able to culture bacteria and that got rejected as well. Everything, you know, turned up millhouse here. So what ended up happening is right before I was going to get deported uh, from the country because my visa ran out... <laughs> I got an email from Brazil, and the email from Brazil said, you know, uh, thanks, but no thanks. Great. Two weeks later, I got another email, hey, were you still interested in that job? (laughs) And I was like, what? Yeah, so we we actually went with someone else uh, from Germany, but they decided that uh, they would like to do a different job instead, so they backed out last minute. We then asked the second place candidate, and she had already found something else. Uh, and we didn't have that many applicants, and we need to spend the money on a foreigner. So, would you like to come over and do whatever with this pile of money? Good. And I'm like, last great. Last man standing. I came in last place, <laughs> but I was the last man standing. That counts. That's it, fine. It, 
<laughs> it was really great for the ego. And so you headed off to Brazil to do what? Uh, I went to study a fungus called Paracoxidioides brasiliensis. Mm-hmm. And this fungus is actually really bad. It hangs out uh, on plants and in the dirt. And when you till the soil, it kind of gets thrown up in the air. And a lot of farmers inhale it into their lungs. And so it really causes a lot of inflammation and scarring in the lungs. And it's almost like within a couple of years, you go from pristine lungs to a lifetime of smoking. You basically have end-stage emphysema and you can't work. Mm-hmm. You also uh, get sometimes disfiguring scars and boils all over your face and hands. It's actually really bad. Uh, but no one really gives a crap because it only affects poor farmers in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we actually worked on uh, immunotherapy, basically. We thought to ourselves that if you basically unshackle this part of the immune system, uh, these macrophages, that if they were more active and more kill-happy, that they might kill off this uh, fungus. And so we spent a lot of time doing this stuff in petri dishes and giving them a little bit of the chemical and giving them a little bit of the fungus and watching how they grow and seeing what happens. And, you know, these in vitro trials, which took uh, a whole year and went over and over, uh, we got slightly positive results, maybe. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a whole year and it was maybe possibly positive. Um, but in that, in that intervening year, you know, I felt kind of that same problem that we were kind of banging our head against the wall that maybe this compound might help, maybe. Then you have to try it in rats, and it might help, or it might get knocked out. Try it in humans, these clinical trials, safety. Then try it again in more humans and more humans, and then it might go to market one day. 90-something percent of potential drugs get knocked out. Uh, But I think what really bothered me is the story of my boss's boss who developed an antibody to another kind of uh, rare-ish fungus. This one mostly affects people who have advanced AIDS who uh, live out, you know, in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. He developed this really expensive antibody therapy and it worked really well. took him 10 years. He sold the rights to a drug company who will remain unnamed. They put it through phase one safety trials. It was fine. They started phase two trial and they shut it down. Not because it didn't work, not because it wasn't safe, but because it was a very expensive biologic antibody drug. And in their mind, poor Africans weren't going to pay enough money. So they shut it down. So the guy wants you know, to know, can I get my patent back at least? And I'm like, no. So they're not going to develop it. They're not going to sell it. They're not going to use it. And they won't give it back to him. And 10 years of his life just went down the drain. And I think that kind of turned me off a little bit. <laughs> off medical research or well, maybe anything pharmaceutical? or up, the, the kind of pie-in-the-sky drug development. And obviously we need this. New medications, uh, this is how they come down the pipeline. They start as research of curiosity. My boss was very much a researcher of curiosity, even though he was doing medical stuff. He didn't really care if he developed a cure for drugs or not. He just kind of wanted to understand how this fungus ticked. Hmm. In a lot of ways, he was a lot like the behavioral ecology researchers. He was studying the behavior of the fungus, and he loved it. And I had a ton of respect for him, and I have a ton of respect for the behavioral ecologist, but that wasn't going to push me through every day for the next 20 years. Hmm. Um, 
In the meanwhile, I'd actually attended some medical conferences down there because we worked with doctors. And, you know, one guy basically said to me, why are you developing this crazy new, you know, biologic antifungal drug thing? Uh, We have antifungals. They work. The problem isn't that we don't have the drug. The problem is that we don't have uh, the doctors that want to essentially go out and, and do it. They have to go out into these communities and uh, be be educated enough in the issues to want to help and be able to reach out and help the community and educate the community as well. So in, in his mind, um, if you wanted to make the biggest impact in the medical field, you kind of have to be a foot soldier and not find yourself back in the lab. And so is this the track you're on now then? You've, you've made the decision to then go back to medical school. So you're at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School over in the States. Mm-hmm. And is the plan then to be a clinical, to be a foot soldier? Uh, essentially, yes. I mean, it's, it would be a lovely story if I said I had this one eureka moment where I was like, you're right! I will go be a foot soldier in the war against deadly fungus. Um, but it was a much slower uh, transition than that. Uh, I found this was all happening during the Ebola outbreak in Africa. Mm-hmm. And I just, I found myself just increasingly not feeling useful enough back in the lab. And I know that at the end of the day, you need this. It has to be done, but doesn't mean it has to be me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of wanted to do things where I can go home at the end of the day and say, this person, I did that thing for this person, and, and that's what helped. And so between Ebola and the fungus, and later on when I got back to America, I started working on an ambulance, and even being able to transport people to the hospital, I can see it. I can see I did this that did it. Mm. And I think that's what kind of pushed me finally into going to medical school. I mean, it makes a lot of sense knowing you and, and working in the same lab as you for a while. You, you and I are quite different people. How so? <laughs> How, I, we're practically siblings separated at birth. I, feel, <laughs> I mean, this idea of you know, scientists being tinkerers, playing a long game, I think I'm definitely that person. I think I definitely like to tinker and uh, solve problems slowly and, and methodically and I'm okay with the, that long-term exploration type of things. And when you join the lab and we're doing that same sort of stuff, during your PhD, were you having those sort of realizations then, halfway through it and going, you know, I don't think this is for me. I don't think my mind works this way. I mean, basically, yes. I did uh, the PhD in large part because I thought that is what people who like science do. Mm. Uh, I, I'd finished my undergrad. I did kind of our version of honors, but much easier. Mm. And I basically just jumped feet first into a PhD immediately, perhaps a little naively, but it ended up being a very good experience. Mm. Um, You know, if things had worked out a little differently, maybe I would have had a bit more time, but it actually worked out quite quickly. Did I ever tell you how I found our lab? No, I don't think so. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Great, great uh, little story. So I asked my supervisor at the time who was a grad student uh, whether she knew anyone doing spider work in Australia <laughs> which is a very specific question Yeah, and she said I have no idea let me get back to you on that 
And a couple weeks later, I got an email from my uh, PhD supervisor said, I hear you're looking for spiders in Australia. You want to come to work at my lab? And I was like, what, what just happened? <laughs> and I managed to retrace the steps that my grad student person asked one of her collaborators who asked her collaborator who asked his collaborator who asked her former PhD supervisor, which then became my former PhD supervisor. <laughs> And I mean, don't 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 take this the wrong way. <laughs> I, I never do. But uh, compared to me, you're an intense person. You know, you don't do things by halves. You know, I mean, even just look at that story. <laughs> you were, weren't necessarily interested in Australia. You wanted to do spider stuff in Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, was this you know hardcore venom spider questions that sort of thing? And then from that. I mean, you respond to a email out of the blue and decide to pack up your entire life and move from New York to Australia as a young man mm-hmm. to do a PhD and say that uh, it, it wasn't enough for you. Is it? Is it that... Do you, do you feel like your mind moves faster than other people's? I feel oh. like your mind works a lot faster than mine. <laughs> Uh, my brother used to tell me that I would just walk into his room and start a conversation halfway through. <laughs> that he's like, wait, what? And I would have to be like, yeah, well, this, then this, then this, therefore what I said. Yeah. And he's just like, where did those other connections come from? <laughs> you're like, wait, you didn't see it? What? <laughs> so I'm actually slower than I used to be. <laughs> I'm getting older. Well, you did really, you, you hit the ground running when you got here to Australia. You, you definitely were a presence in the building because you, you just jumped off the plane from New York, mm-hmm. which is an, an intense place in itself. And then coming to a place in Australia, I feel like it's even culturally there was different paces going on in, in New York versus Sydney. Definitely. And it, it definitely took a little time to uh, adjust. Yeah. I didn't totally understand Australian culture, and it was probably <laughs> a little awkward in the beginning, you might remember. But it got better pretty quick. <laughs> it did. Um, I, I learned the, the pace of things. I learned uh, you know, how, how things ran. And it ended up being, I thought, a very successful PhD. Um, is, is, I, I actually thought in the beginning that I thought my supervisor didn't, didn't actually want me to come. I thought she regretted, <laughs> I thought she regretted it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I, I don't know. It was, it was my own little paranoia. I thought she was like, oh no, who is this, New, this loud New Yorker who is underqualified and does not know how to drive on the left side of the road? Welcome to imposter syndrome. You know? Did you know, did <laughs> you know like... she taught me how to drive on the left side of the road? <laughs> she did. She gave me driving lessons. That is a PhD that's, that's supervisor. That's a good PhD supervisor, I yeah. think. Uh, but no, the, the imposter syndrome did actually eventually wear off. And I know it's super, super common. But I think at some point I just realized that everyone has imposter syndrome, therefore no one has it. Yeah. If that makes sense. That, well, well, no, the, the circles I go in was yeah, everybody has imposter syndrome, but I'm a genuine imposter, and it's, it's <laughs> we're just, we're feeling the same things, but I'm the one that is actually underperforming and doesn't belong here. <laughs> so how do you tell the difference? I don't know. <laughs> at, at, at some point I just realized everyone has it. 
I have it, you have it, you have it, but I think you're cool and I think you're successful, but I know you feel like an imposter. Therefore, if your feelings are a lie, my feelings are also probably a lie. And I know it because I've published things that were well received. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd say your PhD was a success. You've done a whole bunch of experiments. You got a whole bunch of papers out of it. That's, that's it, what you have to do, right? Yeah, it works surprisingly well. And it's, it's what's funny about the whole uh, imposter syndrome now is that I showed up at the PhD as the youngest and least experienced person in this building. Mm. And then a couple years later, I show up at Rutgers, New Jersey Med as one of the oldest and most experienced people (laughs) in the building. Uh, You know, there's a bunch of 22-year-olds running around just like I was back in the day. And here I am, uh, 30 at the time, with a PhD and Mm. like eight papers or something. And it's just like, I'm a first-year student. Student again? I'm attending lectures again? That guy. You're the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was teaching lectures. I ran courses. And people, people would call me Professor Fabricant, because in America, no one cares about titles and how they matter. <laughs> I was actually adjunct lecturer, but don't tell anyone that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I went from this to like being pond scum first-year med student lectures. It was very weird. Is that a boost, or is that a... A big ego hit? Actually, not really. Um, Because I am that kind of nerd who enjoys learning, Mm. and I know I have the, I guess, the skill set. So a lot of my coworkers, I guess not even coworkers, they're my classmates. Uh, A lot of my classmates are like so nervous about this cardiology exam coming up or this kidney exam, and I'm just like, relax, guys. You made it into med school. You have the capacity. You know this stuff. You got this. <laughs> and so I'm like this weird ray of sunshine in my class surrounded by a bunch of neurotic, nervous 22-year-olds. <laughs> it's really kind of odd, but I don't mind. Yeah, and so doing medicine now, again, I'm, I'm on this angle that I, f- I feel like you, you like being in intense environments mm-hmm. and fast-paced, high-pressure sort of environments. You know, people would argue that... Uh, you know, being a, a researcher in pure science is kind of like that, but it's a slower burn. Yeah, it's like being in a pressure cooker. Yeah. While, say, being on an ambulance is kind of like being on fire sometimes. It's a little different. You were doing paramedic training for a bit, weren't you? Uh, it works a little bit different in America. I never went for full paramedic. I kind of did emergency medical technician, intro-level stuff. Uh, but it was all volunteer, and it was just kind of a way to experience and, and dip my foot in the water. Because, you know, maybe if I had spent a year of a PhD, would I have done the full thing? I don't know. Mm. So I did a year of uh, both teaching and a year of being an ambulance worker to see how I felt. And I loved both of them. It was actually really hard uh, to to actually figure that out. But I really did like the uh, excitement and I liked the uh, ability to feel like you're doing something. And most of all, I think I liked the way that people got better. Mm. The way that, you know, you can do something, even something as simple as transport, and you have helped someone, and they know it, and they're glad. Mm. I mean, do you find medical school hard? People always talk about how hard and how much of a gauntlet medical school is. Uh, Yes and no. It's both. Uh, So, it is very intense. The... The common which you love, which is the, <laughs> you're not which, wrong. 
the the common kind of trope in America is that it's like drinking out of a fire hose. Have you heard that? Please elaborate. <laughs> well, fire hoses they have a lot of water. Yeah, uh, and so if you try to drink out of them, it is difficult. The volume and pace is quite、It'll、high. Rip your face off. Yeah. Yes, and so I showed up. At med school, and the very like first two weeks was mostly review, and then the third week, okay,、uh, here's the entire Krebs cycle. You've heard of the Krebs cycle?、Mm-hmm. Do you remember it? No. <laughs> yeah. Something to do with ATP and、uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, they're like, okay,、uh, today we are going to learn the entire Krebs cycle, every molecule and every enzyme, and then we're also going to learn the urea cycle, and then. Tomorrow we're going to learn how to manufacture nucleotides, and at the end of the week you're being tested on the metabolic pathways of everything.、Mm. You have one week. Go. <laughs> It's like, boy, that's that's a lot. It's a lot to learn. It's just a lot of volume to learn. But luckily, I have a weird brain for random, useless trivia facts, so it kind of worked out okay. <laughs> so what you're saying is you're more of a, a, a Scott Fabricant than a Scott Fabricant. Yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm also saying that people who are good at pub trivia will probably do pretty good in medical school. You、yeah. may not be a good doctor, but you'll be great in the classes. So I mean, that's got to be a big difference between you know, your past research background and this. Is、mm-hmm. medicine more about that? Memorization of facts and having facts at hand, as opposed to science and research, which is having a more conceptual、uh, knowledge and being able to explore an idea, as opposed to remembering every little tiny detail about it. What's interesting is, at least as far as I could tell, and I may very well be wrong here because I am not a practicing physician yet,、uh, but it seems as though medical school. Is about knowing a lot of random facts and pulling it up at hand, but actually being a doctor is a little bit more like the research. It's being able to see the big picture. It's being able to look at someone and look at their labs and go, "You're sick, and this is why you're sick."、Hmm. And maybe a med student might be able to, you know, reach into their brain and say, "Oh yeah."、Um, Uh, hereditary hemochromatosis is due to a problem with this iron enzyme, but that doesn't matter.、Mm-hmm. So many of the things that we learn in medical school just don't matter, and we don't spend enough time doing the things that do matter, which is essentially practicing being a human. <laughs> yeah. It's,、uh, how do you find? I feel like medicine and science are always really separate. When they're taught at universities, usually science has its own faculty, which doesn't include medicine. Do you feel like they're approached differently because of that?、Um, I think that biology, regular biology, is given a little bit more of a holistic treatment.、Mm. You start by maybe you start looking at genetics, or maybe you start looking at evolution. You kind of build up step by step. You go from genetics to cells, and then from cells you might look at organisms and ecology, and you see how everything works together, and it kind of makes sense in the big picture. Well, in medicine, you spent two days looking at genetics basically, and then you move on with your lives.、Mm. And so I remember talking about cancer and how you know cancer is natural selection 101.、Mm. It's the reason people. Um, become immune to chemo. It's the reason things can metastasize and spread. But we don't actually think about the evolutionary、uh, pressures on cancer. And so maybe 
five, six years from now, if you become an oncologist, maybe you might be like, oh, that's why we have to use multi-chemo drugs. Mm. But you don't think about that when you're in medical school. You just learn random facts, and they don't really tie together very well. So you, that was actually going to be one of my questions. They don't really teach evolutionary biology as part of the curriculum, do they? Or No, they, they don't. Uh, even when we talked about antibiotic resistance, we had maybe a slide that mentioned evolution, but... I don't even know, I don't think we really went into detail. Uh, surprisingly enough, there are more creationist doctors than you'd guess. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of scary. <laughs> I mean, I guess technically you could be a creationist doctor. You don't have to believe in Darwinian evolution to do, I guess, surgery, right? You kind of only need it in infectious diseases and cancer, maybe? It's weird, though. It's a little unsettling. Yeah, so I guess if you're doing surgery, you can just assume what's in front of you is, is this machine that should be this way. Yeah, sur- surgery is kind of its own special thing where it's not changing too much over time. There are new techniques, but the body is the body. Anatomy is anatomy. Mm. Uh, some of the other specialties really have to adapt to changing, um, changing technology, changing medications, changing understanding you know, you look at heart disease, everyone thought fat was the enemy, then everyone thought sugar was the enemy. Now everyone is not quite sure what's going on. Mm. Honestly, I can, write a, I can write a health book. Moderation everything, go exercise, don't eat too many Twinkies, have fun. Done. <laughs> Published. <laughs> Citations, please. They're, they're a big seller, health books these days. You should probably do it and they, <laughs> rake they in are. on the fan. <laughs> they are. I, I, have, I have just a, a little bit of a... Of a a bugbear in my in my bonnet here. That's not even a thing. Uh, that <laughs> um, there is a huge industry of quackery. Mm-hmm. There are people like Doctor Oz who one hundred percent know better, yeah. and yet they take these public platforms and they sell people crap. Uh, they they take people's money and give them unwellness. Because people are desperate for clarity and simplicity. But the reality is, medicine isn't clear and simple. We spend all this time learning all these hard facts, and then you see your real patient, and you go, I don't know what's wrong with you. I've spent two years learning these things. I don't know why you're sick, and I can't help you. And that's really hard. Mm-hmm. Doctors can't deal with that, and patients can't deal with that. And so they look for all of these easy answers wherever they can get it. And there is no shortage of unscrupulous doctors who are willing to take advantage. And there's no shortage of doctors who don't have a hard grounding in you know, the holistic approach to science who stop and go, hey, maybe what Gwyneth Paltrow is selling is bullshit. Mm-hmm. And so where do you see yourself fitting into medicine in the future? Um, you know, that's actually a, it's a big question. And I have thoughts. But it is important to have the humility to admit that we haven't done our major rotations yet, mm-hmm. so that it may change. But I do have this kind of split in how I think right now. Part of me was really excited about emergency medicine based on the ambulance. It was very... Why am I not surprised by that? Well, you'll, be, su- you'll be surprised by the other one. Um, emergency medicine is, is very uh, intense. It's very immediate. Yeah. There's you know, very immediate gratification. It's either fix, admit, or, or discharge. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always something interesting. But a lot of people assume that emergency medicine is, is all about, you know, this person's having a heart attack, this person is, uh, you know, dying on the spot. But actually, for the most part, it is people who 
don't have good medical access, especially in America, people who don't have good insurance or don't have housing stability, and they need primary care. I ran out of my blood pressure medicines. I have a severe headache. I'm in drug overdose or withdrawal. And so many emergency doctors are like, you know, get out of my ER, you're wasting my time. But I actually think that's the meat and potatoes. The ER is not just exciting. It is the place where you can have the most immediate impact on the most vulnerable and the most needy. So it kind of appeals to both sides of that interest in medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other interest I have is actually the exact opposite. It's actually pediatrics. Oh. And which is weird because I I didn't even think I liked kids until a couple years ago. (laughs) But I shadowed in in the children's hospital and it was amazing. Right? You see this. I, I saw this kid who had a brain abscess and had just come out of neurosurgery and was in a coma. And it was, it was ridiculous. He was not responsive at all. And I was like, this is so sad. And then four weeks later, I'm in, I'm in the community clinic. And I see this kid come in with half of his head shaved and a weird scar. And his mom is wiping some smudge off his face. And he's like, man, stop it. You know, annoying 14-year-old. <laughs> and I look at his chart. And I look at him. Chart. Him. Oh, what the heck? It's that guy. So with pediatrics, you really can have such a massive impact. This little course correction can have lifelong positive effects. So both of them really share this goal that I have of, I guess, going home at the end of the day and being able to feel that, no, I'm not playing the long game. I'm playing the short game. I help you today. Yeah, I don't know if you really sold pediatrics as being less intense than emergency medicine there. <laughs> and, you know, dealing with death and sickness in, in small, vulnerable children is... That's, that's pretty intense. <laughs> Most of the time, children recover. Children are surprisingly resilient. Mm. Um, it's rare that things go wrong, but when they go wrong, they go very wrong. Mm. Um, so a lot of people actually think of pediatrics and they think, oh, you know, you must love kids. And it's like, well, no, I like kids. <laughs> if you loved kids, you would be miserable. You've got, you've got sick and crying kids. You take a kid to the pediatrician, they start screaming and clawing at your face. Mm. Uh, I met a resident in pediatrics, and she said, I love children. I should have been a nanny. <laughs> well, you wouldn't like love children for much longer, I guess. <laughs> no. You, you, you have to like kids. You have to have the steely resolve to do the hard thing even though the outcome might be bad and you have to really love the science because being a pediatrician is like being an internist or a GP times five Mm. a a newborn is nothing like a toddler is nothing like a 13 year old is nothing like a a 20 year old they're all very different so why, why not military medicine Scott why not you know take all of this and then add bombs and threats of your own safety you know why not you know actually people people (laughs) you you wouldn't be the first person to ask me that Uh, my grandfather who was a veteran tried to get me to go and so did one of my classmates who is himself in the military medicine and there is the appeal uh there's the appeal of erasing my very large debt (laughs) <laughs> that's that's a very large appeal. Mm. Uh, there is at least some degree of uh, national appeal of, you know, help my country. I'm, I'm not without that. Mm. Um, but the biggest reason that I don't is because if you go into the military, they kind of tell you what to do and, and where to go. 
And I'm not really so good at being bossed around. No. <laughs> I, I also like to sleep late, and I would totally miss, like, morning uh, kitchen duty or whatever. I'd probably get a dishonorable discharge. Uh, but probably the biggest reason is I want to be able to use my medicine as uh, essentially a, p- a platform. I want to be able to go out and do, say, pro bono work for homeless people. I want to, say, be able to do refugee work. Uh, maybe I want to get involved in, like, I don't know, the new transgender clinic we have at our school. I want to be able to help the people who essentially are crapped on the most by the world. Mm-hmm. And while I have tons of respect for the people who are serving in the military, I think I want to be doing the most impact elsewhere. So, uh, respectfully disagree, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, no, I can't really see you in your your, your camo pants saluting I, superior officers. <laughs> honestly, the camo pants would really clash with the red hair. <laughs> I can't rock that fashion. All right, so you're, you're going for your double doctored whammy. You've got your, your doctorate, your PhD, and now you're going for the medical doctor. So things where to from here? How's, how's, the, how's the study going? What's left to do? You do your rotations. Yeah. Well, what's, what's kind of weird is that I'm a complete clinical newbie, but like I'm a fairly experienced researcher at this point. Mm. And so it's really encouraged that a lot of second, third year med students get involved in research. And, you know, my supervisor, my new one was like, I want you to write this little summary, this little abstract. You know what an abstract is, right? <laughs> I'd like you to write this little abstract uh, for the IRB. You know what an IRB is, right? Um, can you have it back to me in two months? And I was like, I'll have it back to you in a week. <laughs> can, you, can you do a literature review? I, I need you to have at least 10 references. Um, I usually have 10 references per paragraph minimum. What? 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 Where's the bar? I, I went to the stats consultant, and he's like, have you considered a chi-square? And I was like, yeah, I was thinking of a Poisson regression. Adorable. He's like, I've heard of those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is very weird to be both like a postdoc and a complete baby newbie at the same time. But I, I almost enjoy that tension a little bit. But you don't think medical research is the way you go? You, you want to be in there on the ground? Well, yes, with a little asterisk. Yeah. I think there is an important role for outcomes research. Mm. I think it's one of the things I learned as a scientist is don't trust your gut. Mm-hmm. Just because you think something works doesn't mean it does. And so I think it's really important to always be evaluating your practice and to to see the case. So right now we're uh, looking a little bit... Mm, I'm trying to think how much I can say right now. Uh, <laughs> we are looking at interventions at increasing adherence to uh, people who are HIV positive and drug users mm-hmm. and trying to see whether practices in the HIV clinic can help people better take their HIV meds and better take their, um, uh, control their drug addiction. And so are the things we're doing helping? Uh, are the things we could do better? Uh, I'm going to review chart data and uh, medical records and find out. And so this kind of appeals to everything. It's got science. Ideally, it's got significant p-values. <laughs> uh, it's relatively fast and easy. And... It's working with populations that maybe don't get the respect that they might deserve. You know, one of the, 
who in society, at least in America, is looked down more than people who have HIV or who are maybe LGBT? Who's looked down even more than that? Well, drug users. Mm. And so I am more than happy to spend my time standing um, you know, next to them and making sure that what we are doing is working best for them. So in that respect, that kind of you know, quick and dirty self-evaluation is very important. And maybe we'd see more of that if more uh, med people had that hard science background. Mm. So do you ever feel like... Uh... You know, I wonder if you'll ever feel like you're, you've done enough. You know, have you helped as many people as you could have? Are you working with the right demographic where you could be doing the most good work? Do you think that will be your, your life's you know, never-ending struggle? Uh, possibly. I think that one of the reasons I ended up in medicine is because you can be kind of the triple threat. <laughs> you can sing, you can dance, you can, you can act. What, can do you, what, do you, what do you mean, triple threat? Well, well, in research, you have a triple threat, right? If you're going to be an academic, you've got to be a good researcher, you've got to teach, and you've got to do service. Mm. It's the same in medicine. It's just that service is clinical service. You have to be the doctor. Mm. So I think that at different stages of my career, you might see more clinical work, or maybe you'll see a little more research, or maybe you'll see more teaching. I'd love to keep teaching. Um, I think that's the, one of the best ways to make impact because you magnify your impact. Mm. Uh, and, and so I think with medicine, you don't have to be bored. You can always keep moving around in what you're doing. Well, well I'm very excited to see where you end up, Scott. Mm, I'm going to keep an eye on the newspaper headlines and see you chasing ambulances and whatever crazy stuff you get up to. <laughs> I don't even know where you're going to find me in a couple of years. <laughs> good. It's a good attitude to have. You're up for anything. <laughs> right. Well, we should probably finish up and I'll let you, you get back to things. You're heading back to the States tomorrow. Uh, right? yeah, or, yeah. Tomorrow Friday. and a half. Yeah. Friday morning. Friday morning. All right. <laughs> well, if people want to find out more about you know, the man, the myth, the legend, they can follow you on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And what's your handle again? S.A. Fabric. At S.A. Fabric. Yeah, they can also Google me. Really weird things pop up if you Google me. <laughs> and check out your, your latest hibiscus harlequin bug papers and, and all that sort of stuff. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much for sitting and having a chat with me, Scott. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys for listening. If you want to hear more podcasts, they're all on nctscience.com. If you enjoy it, make sure you tell a friend about us. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Science. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. How was that? I feel like I was very sanctimonious. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> very much like, it's important to matter. I have to make an impact on the world. I'm going to work with disadvantaged people. It is. It does matter. I mean, it's all true, <laughs> but I, I have a little bit of a reputation... Uh, this school. podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.